Leading Grace, a listener-supported podcast from the Free Grace Alliance about working together to take the gospel of God's grace to the world. Hello, fellow Free Gracers. I'm your host, Grant Holly, Executive Director of the Free Grace Alliance. On today's episode of Leading Grace, we'll be recapping the Free Grace Alliance International Conference by looking at some highlights from the sessions. Several of our attendees told us they thought that this was our best conference ever, and I know I was blessed by the excellent messages from our speakers. We're only going to be able to highlight a few of the sessions, but if you'd like more, you can watch the full sessions on our YouTube page. Our first clip is from Dr. Mark Haywood, Provost of Grace School of Theology. His session was on truth to the next generation, and here he's talking about how God blesses us when we don't deserve it. You know, Debbie, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about uh, this picture up here. This is my favorite daughter, y'all. Now, ladies, don't get mad at me because she's my only daughter, all right? But she's my favorite daughter, and um, she, she's grown now. But when she was ending her 10th grade, I told her, I said, baby, daddy's going to buy you a car if you can get all A's during your 11th grade year. I said, yep, I'm going to buy you a car, brand new car, in fact. She's got all excited. She said, okay. So, uh, uh, Charlie, first semester came. She got all A's. Second semester came, she got all A's. I'm getting excited. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to count my pennies, you know. Poor people got to count their pennies. So, so I started counting my pennies. Third semester came, she got all A's. Shay, and one B. I said, okay, no car. A deal is a deal. Right, Clayton? The deal was all A's. Come on, Kenny. What was the deal? All A's. Everybody, all A's. That was the deal. So I said, okay, no car. Because she got all A's in one B. So I went on about my business, and I was riding down the street, and grace and mercy bopped me upside my head. And I started to say stuff like, well, that's my daughter. That's my favorite daughter. And even though we had a deal, I'm still going to bless her with this car because that's my favorite daughter. And that's all the reason I need to have to give her that car. And so what I did, I went down to the Nissan place and I said, look, I want this particular car. I told him what I wanted. He found the car and I said, I want you to put one of those boom boxes in the back of the trunk. All of y'all that, you know, have that noise pollution, that's my fault because it's my daughter right in, No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. But, but I, told, I said, I want you to put one of those boom boxes in the back of the trunk of the car so that when she rides down the street playing her music, I want her to be thinking about her daddy. That's right. I wanted her to be thinking about me. So I bought the, brought the car home. And I had uh, one of the ladies from the church, she, she, uh, she knows that my daughter loves purple, y'all. So she got a big purple ribbon and put it around the car. Now, here's the thing that really, you know, touched my heart. We brought it one Friday night, and my daughter was up in the room. She didn't know anything about it. So I go up to the room, and my daughter is studying, y'all. <laughs> that really touched So I said, baby, come out here. So she came out. All of these people standing around with cameras ready to take pictures. But she didn't know what was going on because a deal is a deal. She didn't think that she deserved a car. Eventually, she realized that's her car. 
And she started jumping up and down and screaming. She started running around the car. And I'm saying, baby, get in the car. Don't run around the car. Get in the car. So she finally got in the car, y'all, and she just sat there feeling the car. And she was happy, and she was thankful, and she was appreciative. What's my point? If I, being a human being, can treat my daughter like that, how much more than our Heavenly Father treat us even when we don't deserve it? He still blesses us. So here's the truth, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you guys are driving cars you don't deserve. Some of you guys are living in houses you don't deserve. Some of you got spouses you don't deserve. Some of you are dealing with ministries you don't deserve. And the truth of it is, some of us have been saved, all of us have been saved, and we don't deserve. But here's the good news, because God blesses us, even when we don't deserve. Amen. He blesses us when we don't deserve it. Next up, we have Kevin Butcher telling us about grasping God's great love for us and turning that love towards one another. What if the last piece is toward one another? What if we began to open our heart to healing love in the body of Christ? This is the neighbor piece. Look at this astounding verse. I had a great seminary education. I skipped this verse. I don't remember anybody talking to me about this verse. Peter says, above all things, and he's just talked about prayer in the last verse. So he says, even more important than prayer, above all things. And you know what in Greek, above all things means? Thank you. I, very good Greek scholars, above all things. Have, have fervent love for one another. We've gotten honest here. We've taken it to the Father. Now we're talking about going this way. Coming to church this way. Not looking at the back of somebody's head that way, but this way. I understand we have to do sermons, and they're important. The truth is important. But at some point, if we don't do this, how, how are we going to know the love of God? Have fervent love for one another because that love that took Jesus to the cross, kept him on the cross, N.T. Wright says, and when he said, it is finished, crushed the powers of darkness, so that when we now, right, says, love after the cross is the new power. So that when we come into the community, it could be at a coffee shop, it could be in this wonderful sanctuary, it could be anywhere that a brother and a sister or three or four are gathered in Christ's name, and we turn toward one another and we get honest and we take off our mask and we say, this is who I really am. When love hits that truth, that pain that hell has sent to wound us and to suck us dry, when the love of Christ in and through us heal, hits that wound, it heals a multitude of sins. There's nothing that hell can throw at the body of Christ that the love of Christ that conquered the powers of darkness of the cross can't heal in us. I believe that today with all of my heart because I've watched it in my own jacked up journey in life. God's grace and his love are wrapped up so tightly together that we do the message of grace a disservice if we don't also both talk about and demonstrate God's love. This next clip is from Dr. Sandra Glan. Here, she's shedding light on Rahab's story. I learned a lot from this, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So we go over to Rahab's story in the book of Joshua. And when we come to Rahab's story... 
This one also starts with, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Now, the original readers would have gone, uh-oh, because that's a little bit like saying, and Joshua sent out spies from the Amsterdam red light district. Because the last time we were in Shittim, Israel fell into immorality, and a lot of people died. 24,000 people died. God was judging Israel for their immorality, and now we're back in Shittim. So you're 14 miles from the Jordan and 14 more miles to Jericho. We are ready to take the promised land, and now we're sending in some spies. So the story picks up in Joshua 2. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Wait a minute. The first place you went is there? So the author is setting up the spies as a foil. All right? So just so you know what to listen for now. Listen for you had one job with the spies, and then what this Canaanite, okay, you got a Canaanite woman and Jewish men. Who do you think are going to be God's favorite in this story? Who are you expecting, right? They've had a front row seat to the faithfulness of God. Huge miracles. She heard 40 years ago that there was a, you know, Red Sea crossing. They had a front row seat to all these miracles. So the reader, the listener, is expecting the good guys to be the spies. So the author has a little bit of fun. He, Joshua says, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So we went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men sent out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, there are some things the English text doesn't really tell us but that add to the listening experience, which are kind of PG-rated, honestly. So Rahab's name kind of means the equivalent of broad in English. Okay, so her name is like, you know. Um, and, you know, excuse my English, but it's kind of like the guy's penetrated your house. The, the author is choosing words that are pr provocative to describe this whole thing. It's very body you know, B-A-W-D-Y, very body, until we get to Rahab's speech. Now I want to pause a second and remind us, 40 years earlier, God parted the Red Sea. But only a couple of months earlier, or about a month earlier, there were these two kings that came after Israel. Israel said, we don't want to go to war, we don't have an army, and they want to fight, and Israel ends up with the real estate. <laughs> And the whole land has heard about this because Israel's God is on the move. So before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went on the roof, said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. She's using the covenant name for God. This is a Canaanite 
prostitute. A great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how, the, how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did and Sihon, to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh, your Adonai, is Elohim in heaven above and on earth below. She's pulling out all the formal names of God that his people are using. And she's a Canaanite prostitute. You're not expecting this. And this, as the story goes on, as I'm sure you know it, she hangs a scarlet cord out the window, and it's just like in the Passover. Those who are under the right roof are passed over for violence, and they're saved, they're delivered. And this story shows us that God loves to lavish grace on the insider and the outsider. And so often, we who can sometimes get sick on candy, we have so much good access to good spiritual teaching. We can turn on TV. We can turn on podcasts. We have so much great access. And that can make us insiders in a sense that we can become snobs about what we know. But we can also stop listening to people that we think don't know anything. It can be unbelievers that are speaking the truth. It can be the lowest of the low people who we think are less than us or who, who are less spiritual than us or who are in many ways engaging in practices that we abhor but are still saying something true that we need to listen to. And often, I think God thoroughly enjoys showing up in those spaces and saying, I am the God of the universe. I'll speak through who I want to speak. I can use a donkey if I want to. You better listen to me. So God shows grace both to the insider and the outsider. And in Rahab's story, something else happens. After Israel has taken the land, or they're ready to go in. They're ready to go take the city. And you remember, there's a, there's a mighty man that shows up. And Joshua says, whose side are you on? Now, who do you think he, why do you think he was expecting that to be answered? God has said, I'm going to give you the city. Angel shows up. Whose side are you on? And the answer is, neither. I'm on God's side. God is on God's side. Sometimes we forget that, especially in the last couple of years, right? It's been the elephant side or the donkey side instead of the lamb side. God is for God. He's working in every camp. He's working in every place. And he likes to sneak in where we're not expecting him. It's amazing how God uses people we might not expect in ways we might not expect. Our next clip is from Dr. Fred Che, Academic Dean of Grace School of Theology, and he's talking about the importance of mentoring. I like the words we find of Plato. He said, educated mind and not morals is to unleash a monster. Amen to that. And too often, mentoring focuses on only one thing and not everything, and it can lead to trouble bring it up to um, a little more modern period, to educate a person in mind and not in morals is to educate a menace to society. Well, we have a few menaces running around in our world. And obviously, FGA is trying to network 
we're trying to teach, we're trying to encourage, we're trying to, dare I say, mentor, so that we have a next generation that is ready to roll. Now, I look at my task as to be a subversive agent in the classroom, not to mention in groups like this. My goal is to help change people. I want to be a change agent. I, I want to help people grow both in their head, their heart, and their hands, their skill level, because that's what I think the Lord has called us to do. But we can't do that alone because persons depend on persons to become persons, right? It, it's a team effort. That's why Jesus had a team. We may not have been impressed with the team, but actually they've done a pretty good job as you look down the, the years. In fact, it's got to be a team attempt, as Aristotle told us. People, people do not naturally or spontaneously grow up to be morally excellent or practically wise. They become so, if at all, only as the result of a lifelong personal and community effort. Well, we're a community. We're the community of the FGA. We represent a small slice of it. But our job is to help make disciples, correct? Mentor men and women. Because that's the only way we're going to have the next generation that's going to be somewhat effective. So we have to be somewhat of an intergenerational enterprise. I remember in seminary in 1982, Dr. Ryrie, he, uh, he told me, he said, listen, you guys got to carry on the fight. He says, I'm old. And that was in 82. Well, go fast forward to 2000 or 2022 almost. You know, you look at some folks here. Dave Anderson, Jody Dillow, Paul Tanner, a number of folks. Joe Wall, Ed Underwood, and even the ever youthful prototypical fisherman, Charlie Bing. We're getting old. <laughs> We're getting older, right? Now, some here are not quite as old, but some of us are getting up there. And if there's going to be a next generation, it's going to be because we help produce that, right? We've got to be involved in that. When we look at the ministry of Christ, it was primarily a ministry of discipleship or mentoring and his ministry is still bearing fruit now 2,000 years later. It may seem like a small ministry to invest in just a few people, but it can be the most impactful kind of ministry. One of the purposes of the Free Grace Alliance is to help connect Free Grace people in ministries. Here's a short word from Inbounds, an FGA member ministry. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. For decades, the wide world of sports captivated television audiences. Sports are a huge part of our culture. Inbounds Ministries uses a sports theme to attract a wider audience. Sports tend to be a common denominator of most cultures. Gender doesn't matter, race doesn't matter, age doesn't matter. Sports cross those boundaries, as did Jesus, as does the gospel. Helping churches reach kids through our Total Player Academy camps, clinics, and blacktop Bible clubs. Training churches and our Mad Hoops approach to reaching men. These are just some of the ways we are fulfilling the Great Commission via the Great Commandment according to the Great Game Plan of reaching home and away in a culturally relevant way. Find us at InboundsMinistries.com or our devotional site CoachBurden.com. 
Reach out to Coach Burton and see if you can schedule inbounds to come out to your area and help you reach your community with the Free Grace message. If you're a member of the Free Grace Alliance and would like us to highlight your ministry on our next podcast or in Leading Grace magazine, please reach out to us. You can contact us through our website and there's no cost. This next clip is from my session. In it, I'm talking about what it takes to have unity without uniformity. We all share one body, one spirit, one hope of calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father. We all share all those things. But we also have a lot of differences. And those differences are, this is, this is the challenge. We have to understand that those differences are both acceptable in the fact that God accepts them. He accepts and, and even he allows the differences that I'm talking about. But also, those differences are necessary. They're important for the body of Christ. Unity is easy when everyone's the same. And some of you guys might be wondering why things like ethnicity, generational differences, gender, why these sort of things will cause disunity in a group because those don't seem like huge differences. I mean, the, the tone of our skin shouldn't make a difference, right? How old we are, whether we have gray hair or not, shouldn't make a difference. Whether our bodies have certain parts or other parts shouldn't make all that much difference. But the differences don't come from those superficial things. The differences come because our experiences and our different places in life create some diversity of thinking and values. The younger generation does not think, the younger generations don't think the same way that the older generations do. They don't have the same values. They don't care about the same things. And there are a lot of values that are in conflict with one another and that they're both good, but they're in conflict with one another and there's, a diff, there's different ways to balance them. One generation might have uh, more emphasis on one side, and the other generation might have more emphasis on the other. But these differences are both acceptable and important for the body of Christ, for the unity of the body of Christ, and also for the effectiveness of the body of Christ. The world needs uniformity in these things, culture, traditions, precious values that come into conflict, like I mentioned. For example, individual freedom, social responsibility. COVID has brought this out big time. These values do not always mesh. Individual freedom, social responsibility. How do you prioritize them? Does scripture say? Nope. We're talking about, a lot of this is enlightenment thinking talking about well over a millennia, a millennium after Scripture was written. But we have to figure out how we're going to balance these things, and we have to understand that other people may not balance those things the same way that we do. Okay? This is where it gets really challenging. This is where issues of diversity become challenging. How do we address social justice issues? That's a challenge. It's difficult. It's difficult. If we think about all these extra biblical things, we have to admit that some of them are very important to us. 
People die for these values. People kill for these values. People spend all day yelling at people on social media about these values. Um, but I can promise that however important these things are to us, none of them are more important than the law of Moses was to Saul of Tarsus the Pharisee. You might be a Republican or a Democrat, and you might think those, things are, those, those values expressed by those parties are super important. But they, and they might be very precious to you. But those things, do not, those things are not more precious to you than the law of Moses was to Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee. In this church in Rome, the differences in the Jewish and Gentile believers were so staggering that they needed some help to understand how do they get along. How do they address these things and how do they live in community when there's such staggering differences? Could you imagine having your entire cultural identity based on certain practices and you're supposed to have fellowship with a bunch of people that don't care at all about any of them? That's got to be difficult. And it's certainly got to be difficult for you to be living your life and experiencing all the freedom that these Gentiles experienced. Then all of a sudden people are trying to say, well, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. It's difficult. It's very difficult. And so Paul, as a Pharisee, was an expert in the law and had been zealous enough about it to become a persecutor of the church. But because Christ called him as the apostle to the Gentiles, his zealotry flipped from being zealous about the law to being zealous for the Gentiles. The people who they used to call, or he used to, he, they did, and he used to probably call foreskin or dogs. Those people became his passion. The people who he couldn't hang out with before because it made him unclean became the love of his life. The thing that drove him to even suffer persecution willingly. The one who persecuted for the sake of the law became the one who suffered persecution for the sake of the Gentiles. The life Christ calls us to is one that puts ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice out of love for our neighbor. Paul didn't just say it, he lived it as he imitated Christ. This next clip is from Scott Pollock's pivotal session on working together across generations. So what the specific challenges? I want to get really practical here. What are the specific challenges? I've come up with five. Again, I'm, I, I told you from the beginning, I, I feel like a traffic cop in the middle of the road. Okay, So I'm just sort of sharing you what I've seen and what I've been thinking about for several years. Um, I, I didn't get these things from Hayden Shaw or any other books. I'm just paying attention to the relationships around me and the ministry that God gives me, and I'm trying to figure out where are the challenge points. These are the five that I've come up with. Methods, Bible, culture, identity, and holiness. And let me tell you, um, methods, on the negative side, left-hand side of the screen, these becomes the point of tension and conflict in generations. They're like, you do things differently, and I don't like it. You like this, and I don't. You do it this way, and I don't. Have you noticed that math has changed? Anybody? Homeschool parents? 
Like my, my son brought me math. He's brilliant. He saw him, brought me math and he put on a problem. I go, oh, I know how to do that. And I did it. He goes, oh, that's not how we do it anymore. And I'm like, what do you mean it's math? Like it just stays the same, right? Since Newton and Kepler, like isn't it all the same? He goes, no, no, no. There's lots of new things. I'm like, who, who, who made those new things? He goes, I don't know, but it's just new now. And so what is it about me trying to force, no, no, this is the way you do the problem. That doesn't help my son. And the point that I'm getting to, my big idea is coming, it, it, it's really in the right-hand corner of the screen right now, that when it comes to methods, collaborative genius is, is a powerful potential energy for us moving forward. And that's what I'm going to argue for, okay? In the Bible, we worry that the chief concern of older generations when it comes to the younger generations is they're giving up on the Bible. They're compromising the Bible. And it's happening a lot. Please don't misunderstand. That's what traditionalists, baby boomers, some Gen Xers are like. Those guys walk all over the Scripture if they ever open it at all. And so as we talk about challenges, we need to understand that without compromising a single letter, a single point of theology, especially the gospel, younger generations are asking the Bible different questions. And they're using the Bible to answer different questions in the culture. And that's the thing that we need to learn from. We sometimes see compromise where there is not compromise. There's just a change of angle. Sometimes when we see compromise, there really is. But we need to have the theological sensitivity and the cultural respect to pay attention to the difference between those two things, okay? When it comes to culture, younger generations focus way more here than the older generations. They are engaged more in social justice issues, all kinds of things. And there are many books being written about that right now, some of them very, very good, um, uh, talking about the differences between social justice and biblical justice and how Christians should engage that. There is an inescapable reality in our culture that we, especially the older generations like me, I'm a Gen Xer, that we need to understand to address with grace and truth and not just say, yeah, you know, God's going to handle that. I'm just going to give here and live my life and Keep making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It'll be okay. You know, the younger generations are saying, no, do something about it. Culture's a big deal. I'm building up because the fifth one is really important to me. Culture. Excuse me, I, I, identity. I think this is the center of the battle. And I think in many ways, it's the center of the gospel. The identity of Jesus Christ as God. And the change in identity that we get by putting our faith in him and receiving salvation as a free gift. Do you know there is a battle of identity going on? They use that word in ways that adulterate the very idea of it. Identity is a major challenge. But holiness, I would submit to you, is and has been a foothold uh, for bad theology. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of my friends who are my age or a little older or a little younger and are pastors of large churches all over the country, influential churches, they're conference speakers, um, they write books, they're, they're movers and shakers, almost all of them, without exception, um, are reformed in their theology. 
either very hard or sometimes mild, but you, do you know, in my conversations with them, listening to their sermons, they're my friends. I love them. I think they're going to heaven. I think I am too. In fact, I know I am, and we'll be there together because of the grace of Jesus. But we have lots of differences in theology. But there's a common, a common factor that I've heard from them with my own ears, in person, conversations, and in sermons and in books. And here it is. When I was at an influential age, I ran into nominal Christians who said they were perfectly sure they were going to heaven, but they were living like hell. And I thought, that can't be true. Holiness must be way more important than they say it is. And they began to shift. Every single one of them. And I think that this is an opportunity for us. Free grace women and men. Free grace churches. Free grace institutions. This is an opportunity for us to start to shift the conversation. And to talk about how free grace and the uncompromised gospel speaks perfectly, accurately, comprehensively to the subject of holiness. Do you recognize in the books written against us, that is a major topic. They will go so far as to say, those churches, those women, those men, they don't care at all about sin. They don't care at all about repentance. They don't talk too much about sanctification, personal, spiritual growth, and holiness. And so that is, in my opinion, the straw man that they set up against us. And when I read that, I laugh out loud. I did. I read those things and I laugh out loud. I say, that's not me. That's not our church. That's not how we do it. But that's what they think. I'm not sure why they think it, but I'm suggesting to you this is an opportunity for us. And here's how I think we take hold of that opportunity. Um, application. I, I want you and I together to stop failing in 1 Corinthians 12. Stop suggesting, even inside where nobody else hears, uh, I don't need you. Millennial, you're the problem and I'm going to work around you. That's sin and it goes against the way God has set up the church. Just hear me. Stop failing in 1 Corinthians 12. If you don't get over that, we will never move the ship. We will never move the ship. We will be bogged down in intermural, intergenerational conflicts. Listen to me. While Satan steals a whole generation. And I don't want to see that happen. We're just talking about, you know, their parents gave everybody a trophy participation trophies. I have no care about that. I want to learn from their strengths. I want to share my strengths in my generation. I want to learn from the strengths before me. And I want to collaboratively work together to figure out the solutions that this present age needs on the mission field and in the church. It's essential that we grasp what Scott is saying here in this session and put it into practice as we labor for the gospel if we want to see the Free Grace Movement thrive. Finally, we have a clip from Michael Jansen's excellent workshop, Why Don't Millennials Go to Church? Here's what Scott Pollock had to say about Michael's session. Michael Jansen yesterday did a breakout session, and if you weren't in here, you need to go back when we get these things online. He's a young 25-year-old guy from Huntsville, Alabama, and he killed it yesterday talking about generations. You need to go listen to that talk because it was great. It was really, really great. I completely agree with what Scott said. 
I'm just going to play a short clip from his session, but if you've been wondering how you can better reach millennials and even Gen Z, it'll be worth your time to go and listen to the whole thing. The last one is not a hard concept. We need to respect young people. I know millennial jokes are hilarious. They can be so much fun. If you stand on stage and you publicly ridicule young people, you have lost your seat at the table. If you're talking to me and you disrespect me, I no longer care what you have to say. So if we are ridiculing them in public or in private, we've lost our seat at the table with young people. We need to respect them. But in churches, what that also means is we need to value their opinion and value their perspective and what they have to the table, what they bring to the table. My friend Andrew Murphy, who is a millennial, says, I want to be seen as more than a seat filler or a money giver. He wants to be valued in a church. He wants to make a difference. He wants to do something more important. But for a long time, churches have not cared what young people say. They say, you're not important, step aside. We need to be engaging with young people with authenticity, relatability, and respect in individual relationships and in church settings. Remember, you can catch the rest of these sessions and many more at the Free Grace Alliance YouTube page or at freegracealliance.com. If you haven't seen the new Leading Grace magazine, be sure to go check it out at freegracealliance.com magazine. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you would like to become a member of the Free Grace Alliance or to support FGA in its efforts to share grace graciously, you can do that and learn more about FGA at freegracealliance.com.